Football on the Sports Social Podcast Network is brought to you by BetVictor, where new signings are guaranteed a great debut. Join and choose your welcome offer at betvictor.com. 18 plus, begambleaware.org. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that it just got easier to be an NFL fan, even if you live far away. Like, maybe you like the Bears, but you're hibernating in Panthers territory. But with NFL Sunday Ticket, your out-of-market team is never more than a short distance away. Specifically, the distance from you to your remote control. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. Welcome to the Blue Day podcast and for Chelsea fans everywhere, every day is a blue day. This is going to be a long one folks today so sit back, relax and enjoy. I am your host, a man with the face for podcasting, Keith Lawrence. On today's show we will review the last two Chelsea games that have happened this week. We'll we'll be discussing Chelsea transfer news, ins and outs plus the rumours leading up to the transfer deadline day, talking about the UEFA Champions League draw and finally we have a huge announcement that will be made at the end of the show. So please stay tuned because every true Chelsea fan will want to hear this one. But to join me today is somebody who I consider to be Mr. Power of Positivity. He is also the Londoner living it large up north, especially in them pubs with the cheap beer. It's Warren. Warren, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Keith. How are you this morning? Like you said, big smile on your face. I think we're all feeling... uh, I think everyone's feeling a bit more positive this morning. What a difference a win makes. What a difference a win and a performance and a clean sheet makes. Oh, uh, it doesn't matter what the weather is today. It could be shit, but I'm in a great mood. Yeah. I'm in a fabulous mood today. It's very, it's very rare that last season, it was very rare. We had a few occasions in at Stamford Bridge, and we had a few occasions in the Champions League, actually, away to Ajax, away to Lille as well, where we scored, uh, we played, the performance was good, and we kept the clean sheet. And apart from the games that I mentioned there, there was Tottenham as well. Um, where we won away, played really well, clean sheet. But it's probably only the seventh or eighth time under Frank that it all came together and the performance was there, the clean sheet was there and the result was there. We've always sort of had one or two out of the three. But yesterday was... And it wasn't the complete performance for reasons that we'll discuss more going into the podcast. But yeah. Yes, we'll discuss about the Palace game later. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I do agree with you that overall... And even, you know, when we, we will touch bases on the Tottenham game very, very shortly, but the performances are getting there. Yeah. The again, overall again, against to, again, against Tottenham, it was kind of two out of the three. Yes. You know, out of the, the performance, the clean sheet, the result, it was kind of, you know, what it was kind of one and a half out of the three, almost. <laughs> 
Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's let's touch bases with the Spurs game first. And I know, you know, many people will probably have forgotten about it and go, meh, you know, it's League Cup or whatever. But I just want to I just want to sort of get your uh, take on this, Warren. I've spoken to a few Tottenham fans since the game. And they were saying that Frank Lampard, you know, this is going to be the season. He's going to struggle, blah, 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 and all that shite. But the overall consensus of the Spurs fans, especially from what I've heard on radio and TV, this was their highlight of the season. They were treating this like this was their cup final, beating Chelsea. And well, it weren't yeah. even the quarterfinals. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, we, we all listen. We all know about Tottenham's small club mentality. There's videos on the YouTube of them, and I can understand that getting into the Europa League was their target, and they achieved their target, and they should be pleased with their target. But as a team that was supposedly meant to be challenging for titles and stuff, the way that they celebrate that shows the mentality around their club, and it was a big result for them because it would have been a big result for us if we won. I think it would have. You know, it's always a big result to beat Tottenham or for Tottenham to beat Chelsea. So it is a big result, but it just shows their mentality. And, you know, if Tottenham, the reason that Tottenham fans think that Frank's going to struggle this season and be under a lot of pressure is because that's what they expect, because that's what they watch every week. They watch a team either just completely fail or get to the point of success and then fail or just sort of blend into mediocrity and fail. It doesn't really matter what they do. They just fail, so they don't expect anything more. As a Chelsea fan, I expect a lot more, and I've been treated to a lot more. So I suppose that's where the mentality is different. So fuck Tottenham. <laughs> fuck Tottenham indeed. The one thing that I did uh, First sort of rant notice... on Sunday morning, I feel like the world's a better place. It's not even half nine either. No. <laughs> <laughs> the the one thing I did notice while watching the Steve game on Tuesday night, and I was comparing it to Spurs from a few years ago under Pochettino, I believe they've gone backwards since Poch has left. I don't know if they've gone backwards or so, so much as they've stood still where they were and everybody else has improved around them. Possibly. Possibly. I think, I think that's more... I think Mourinho is doing as good a job at Tottenham as anybody else could at the minute. True. My thoughts on the eleven, just quickly again, because we're sort of just briefly glossing this over. I'm surprised Tammy didn't start, but, and these were my notes before the game, Frank probably had Palace in mind for Tammy yeah. to start, which, yeah. you know, we'll talk about later, definitely happened. Hudson-Odoi deserved his start yeah. on Tuesday. And to see Kovacic and Jorginho in midfield, I thought would be interesting to see how they played together, Frank at the helm, how their midfield dynamics would work, you know, with the defence the way it is and with the attack different from last season. So they, those were my thoughts pre-game. The first half, beautiful strike by Timo Werner. Yeah. However, when he's looking to switch the play, Timo, which I find in the last couple of days, this is, sorry, last couple of games this has happened. All of his passes have gone astray. Whether or not that's Timo's game, I don't know. To, you know, I remember sort of seeing Timo a lot at IB Leipzig. He wasn't that particular player. I thought he could have supported Giroud a bit more on the attacking sense because there was a lot of times Giroud was isolated when it, when Spurs had the ball and Giroud was trying to press. 
normally you'd with Werner being the striker, you'd expect him to support the press, but he didn't do that as much. But the one, and I have got this underlined many, many times, the defending throughout the game, I thought was very, very good. Well, until the goal. Until the goal, which I will talk about. And I believe there was one particular reason why the defence fucked up for that goal. But defending while Ben Chilwell was on the pitch was brilliant. Yeah. And it looked solid. Yeah. What the one criticism I did have, well, the main criticism, apart from uh, a particular left back that came on, was when I want Hudson-Odoi on the ball, I want him to run past the player. Not keep passing it back or, you know, trying to switch the play at every opportunity. He has got pace to burn, run at the, the Tottenham defence. Because I don't think the Spurs defence would have caught him, used the pace that God gave him to get past the player and get balls in for Giroud and Timo to yeah. attack. I know what you mean. And we, we saw it against West Brom, kind of. what I think what he does is he tries to constantly come short and keep coming short and keep passing it back and like you're saying passing it back to the full backs and then back into central midfield and pass and spreading the ball switching the ball and spreading it wide and stuff I think what he does I think he does that to a certain point to draw the defence out so that there's the space in behind them because Tottenham were playing quite deep and we was pressing Tottenham quite high so it was quite difficult I do agree there was occasions where I, I think he's just it, I think for the first time since under Sarri, at the end towards under Sarri when he got his injury, I think for the first time since then his confidence is really coming back. I think his confidence is really, really coming back. I think Frank's made a real signal of intent to him by playing him and starting him. So it's been quite a long journey for him to get back into the starting lineup in the Premier League. So I think his confidence is really starting to come back and I think we're going to start seeing him, you know, skinning players around the outside an awful lot more and, you know, that box of tricks that he's got that's unbelievable is going to start coming out more and more. I think that we're going to start really seeing the best of Callum now. I think he's really... It seems like he's almost turned a corner. I know he had a good chance against Tottenham that he blazed over the bar. But he yes. Looked, he, he yes. Looked, he looks sharp. And I think with Timo and what you say about him and it not maybe being in his locker about you know the, the range of passing and stuff, yeah, maybe it's not. But that's not why he's in the team. You know, he's in the team to run with the ball and get in behind and run at defenders. And there was there was a few times against Tottenham that you could see the way that he was stretching the game and opening space up. I was a little bit surprised that Jorginho and Kovacic started. I was surprised that he played Kante and Jorginho against Brighton and then not Kante against Tottenham. I was quite surprised with that. But then it's because everything's all out of order with the... You know the the lack of preseason and the rearranged restart and everything. All the everybody's preseason and rehab for the start of the season. And everything is all out of sync with itself. Well, uh, I can understand Kente uh, not being in the starting eleven and you know looking to play the full ninety minutes because you know bearing in mind Kente didn't play a lot last season because of injuries. Yeah, probably Frank wanted to maybe rest him. A little bit just to sort of see how the game would develop later on. Yeah. But I thought the timing that Kante came on was spot on. And I thought Kante yeah. made a difference when he came on. Absolutely. 
Yes. Absolutely. That that that's something that that was something that was in my notes that you know, let's talk about you know, we've mentioned there the starting lineup and a few individual players. Let's just mention that we, we played very, very well for for the first hour, sixty five minutes, we played extremely well. We was organised, we was disciplined, we created chances, Tottenham couldn't get hold of the ball, um, we looked solid enough from corners, Mendy had one flap at one. Mourinho changed it up tactically after about an hour or so and he showed a little bit of experience and a little bit of class with how he changed things subtly and um, just starting positions for one or two of their players and they was pressing a lot higher. I think he got into them quite a lot at half time. I think Dyer going off for a cheeky line helped. <laughs> but it yeah, it, you know, they turned the corner of the second half of the second half, so to speak, Tottenham and they ended up playing quite well and then obviously Chilwell wasn't ready for the ninety minutes. Emerson come on and, you know, made a poor mistake at the back post letting uh, Lamella in behind it. Like, that's, that's, that's Alonso levels of mistake. That was really poor, that was. But um, we was really good. You know, we did, for an hour, we was the much better team. And it was the first time under Frank that from the start, his teams really, you could see where he was going with it. And you could see that once this player was in there or that player was in there. And it wasn't ju- it's not just me saying, oh, when these four or five, six players come back, you watch and see how we play. We actually played like that for large periods of the game and we still didn't have all of the personnel back. So I was disappointed, obviously. I was gutted to lose against Tottenham. Of course I was. I was absolutely gutted. Mason Mount was really unlucky with his penalty. He's three inches away from that being considered the perfect penalty. He played really, really well again. Again, we'll need, need, like, he was rested this week because so he had no more socks in his size. Um, <laughs> he was literally, I'm not even joking, they just didn't have to kick for him. They just couldn't afford it. Yeah, it was, but it was an it was an excellent performance. We ran out of legs a little bit. We lost our shape a little bit when Chilwell went off. Kante did make a difference breaking up the play. I think that that was a a wise substitution from Lampard, and I think it also showed how seriously he was taking the game. And it wasn't just we was playing some of our top players for fitness in the Carabao Cup and using it as a pre-season. He wanted to win to the point that Kante kind of has had his pre-season now and could have done with a rest before the weekend, so he was fully fit. But he brought him on to make the difference to win the game. And I think that was a real signal of intent from Lampard. And, and playing Mendy rather than Caballero. And, you know, playing Werner and Havertz and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And all these other players, Jorginho and Kovacic in the midfield and Mount again. I think it showed that he really, really wanted to stay in the competition. He really, really wanted to beat Tottenham, as we all did. But... That being said, now that we're out of it, it could end up being a blessing in disguise. Looking back at this moment, at the end of the season, we might say then three or four games that we didn't play over Christmas in the Carabao Cup, as it will be after that long Champions League run, could end up being pivotal in the longer term. I agree with you to a point that it could be a blessing in disguise, especially with you know less games, more training for Frank to gel his players yeah. considering we haven't had a you know a proper pre-season like every other team yeah. I am disappointed to go out to Tottenham because I thought the Spurs game was there for the taking however I cannot fault the Spurs I can't excuse me I nearly swore I cannot fault the Chelsea team I cannot fault you know any of the players apart from Emerson who I thought really fucked up you know, yeah. 
really massively fucked up yeah, the goal. It's a, poor it's a poor mistake. That that mistake, it might not be as obvious initially um, to everybody, but that mistake is as bad as the Alonso or the Thiago Silva one or the whole defensive unit against West Brom. Well, the one that sprung to mind with Emerson's mistake was it was very similar to his mistake for the Arsenal goal when we played him in December. Yes. When Aubameyang scored. When Emerson done the mistake, it was very, very similar because he, he, you know, he's the last man in that line of defence and the ball's coming over his head and his overall positioning was shit. It yeah. was shit back in December and it was shit on Tuesday. So, you know, that's the thing with Emerson seems to let people go from crosses, which mm. I know he's been guilty of. Alonso's more guilty. If if the ball's coming down the left-hand side, so he's obviously on the opposite side to the pitch, let's say that, you know, against um, Tottenham, Lucas Moura was running down the left-hand side. What Alonso, I think, has a habit of doing is getting sucked in and leaving too much space behind him, which always gives people the run on him. And I think that's kind of his problem, whereas Emerson is one of them people who just thinks, oh, well, there's four people in between me and the cross. He's definitely not going to come this far. I'm going to stand out here and be ready to receive the ball. Mm. I think that's mm. what Emerson does quite a lot, and I think you've just noted it there. I think, and I don't think that's the only time that it's happened and it's cost us goals. Let alone it be the only time it's happened and you know chances have been created against us. It seems to happen all the time with him, and I think that's why Frank just doesn't see it working with Emerson. So I'm very surprised he's still at the club. I'm surprised he's still at the club, whether or not. I don't know whether he's, Frank's expecting an academy player to come through soon or something, but I'm not sure. Emerson reminds me of a, of a lot of the players that we've had in the past that have then gone to other leagues and done okay. <laughs> yeah, he would be so suited in Serie A, he would probably be one of the best left-backs in that league. But in this league, you know, his mistakes do get found out. His overall game gets found out. But as you say, I'm surprised he's still at the club. However... Like I said before, and we uh, and and I want to end this on a positive. Yes, you know we're at the League Cup, but it's, I look at it as it's not the end of the world. It only feels like that because it was Tottenham. Yeah. If it was against you know Man City, I could probably take it. If it was against Newcastle, I could probably take it. But because it's Tottenham, it is still a bit sore. But I will want to end this on a positive because I'm in a fucking great mood. The whole team as a unit played very, very well. The pressing the Spurs players in the first half was exceptional. Werner's strike, very, very good. Will not be the last time we say that on the podcast this season. So I want to take that into the positivity. So, excuse me, I want to take that as a positive and I want to, you know, really put it into Chelsea fans' minds that, Frank is trying to build something because the amount of negativity that I heard on Tuesday night going into Wednesday morning, oh, Frank shit, Frank should go out. Oh, yeah, Mason, Mason, Ma- Mason, Mason Mount to wake up. Mason Mount took a lot of stick. I was told that, you know, he's too much of a baby and he's too much of a, like a little wuss, essentially, and blah, blah, and all the rest of it. And it just, it was one of them things that I had to let go over my head because mm. I felt that, you know, I understand that people have a different opinion on different games of certain players, but for, to call out Mason Mount, who's missed two games since Frank Lampard came into the club, two, he's only missed two games 
since Frank Lampard came into the club. Listen, you're not around world-class players and managers that were the best midfielders in their, in, in, their, in the game at their time. And you're not around all these players and around a club full of players behind the scenes like Czech and Morris and Cole and Drogba and etc, 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 etc. You don't play in 60 or 70 games almost in a row with all them players around you without some, and be shit without somebody noticing. <laughs> right? So I just want to nip that one about Mason Mount in the bud straight away. You know who you are. You do listen to the podcast and you are chatting shit. I think the most important thing to take out the Tottenham game, last 25, 30 minutes, Tottenham put us under a lot of pressure. Last season, we would have buckled and let them create seven, eight, nine, ten chances. They created two, maybe three. Three, like the two that were like half chances and then the goal. Last season, we would have conceded a lot more chances and we would have buckled under the pressure. And apart from that one mistake from Emerson, we didn't. And that was a massive plus as well. And I will want to end this on a positive before we talk about the Palace game. Mendy's debut, solid. Apart from the one flap. Apart from the one flap, but I'm not being funny. And I only mentioned it that. Was he, it was his debut. I will let him off for one flap. Absolutely. Have you seen Absol- the amount absolutely of flaps? Absolutely so will I. But I will, the only reason that I mention the flap is just to provide a little bit of consistency because we analysed and studied and criticised every single move that Kepa made unless it was perfect. So I think it's only fair to bring a certain amount of consistency in for the next goalkeeper as well, like we did with Caballero. Just to say that he did have a bit of a flap at one, but he looked he looked calm, and that just exuded out to the defence. And it, you're was, an talk- ex- Sorry. it was an experienced defence as well. You're talking about flapping. Have you seen Jermaine Pickford re- recently? He's flapping more than a one-winged pigeon. Well, I tell you who's even worse is the Everton goalkeeper, Jordan Pickford. He's even worse than Jermaine Pickford. <laughs> he's definitely worse I watched match today right and there's this geezer Jordan Pickford right little ginger geezer from the North East right and he, he, he kind of looks like the geezer out of this is England you know the young lad in it the one with the flares and all that the one they sort of like all the skinheads take on and that anyway he looks like him but yeah Jordan Pickford Everton yeah he's having a <laughs> chopper yeah who's Jermaine Pickford who does he play for <laughs> I let you have that one, you right? Bastard. Because you, you never you never get names wrong. You're always spot on with your facts and your fact check, and you're always spot on. It's very rare that I have the opportunity to for you for, that you've said that on air, and that is staying in the show as well. There's right? a reason. <laughs> there is a reason why I've got Jermaine in my head. I will explain later. Jermaine penis. I uh, know. I will explain later. Let's talk about the Palace game. My notes, to be perfectly honest, Warren. There's not that many, because really, in all in all honesty, I thought it was the perfect game. Well, I mean, I only made four no, four pages of notes. Um, only the four pages. My first my first note that I wrote after the match, so to speak, was Zuma excellent, Silver settling in, Chilwell man of the match, Jorginho is class. Mm. They were my notes straight after the match. But as with regards to the Palace match, Crystal Palace, we all know what Crystal Palace are. They are a solid defensive unit who are very, very organised. They know their jobs. They're well drilled. They're consistent. And they have pace on the attack. Right In Will Zaha and AZ 
and Ayu and Townsend, they've got an attack that is potentially like as good as Leicester's that won the league, right? In terms of like, I know that was a one-off season, but you know Vardy and Mares, but you could argue that Crystal Palace could be as potent as a Leicester. Right, so we all know Crystal Palace's strengths, but Crystal Palace's main strength is that they don't concede a lot of goals, and that they stay very, very tight at the back, and they're always a threat going forward. Crystal Palace against us yesterday, and I do bear in mind that it is only Crystal Palace, but it doesn't mean that what I've said isn't true. Crystal Palace give Arsenal, Man City, Tottenham, Liverpool, Man United, Chelsea, they always give them a hard game, and it's usually only one goal that settles it. I can't remember the last time a so-called top team demolished Crystal Palace like that. I don't remember the last time it happened. And we had to be so patient and we had to be so aware of their threat going forward that was zero with how well we played, apart from one Mendy save that was like a deflected cross for Ryu in the second half. Yes. But yeah, it was... I wouldn't say that it was perfect because it wasn't necessarily perfect to the eye. But in terms of getting everything right from the very back to the very front and doing it for 90 plus minutes, I agree. It was perfect, so to speak. You know, it was, like I said, the patience of the performance is what impressed me the most because it would have been very easy to to panic, not the best start to the season. Apparently Frank's under pressure. Apparently all these players are under pressure. Apparently nobody's good enough and all the rest of it all this so-called pressure that's come in from so-called football people and so-called Chelsea fans and stuff, it would have been easy to panic. And they didn't. They just kept doing their thing, plugging away, understanding that the chances would come. Uh, Chilwell is showing that he can play the Alonso role going forward as well as Alonso, which is very, very important because in replacing Alonso and getting a better defensive player, the worry was that we'd lose it going forward because Alonso is astonishing going forward. We said many times before he's the top goal scoring defender since he came to the Premier League. Um so Chilwell showed that he could do that as well as his defensive responsibilities. So yeah, really lovely goal from him. Kurt Zuma, what a header. You know, and he was excellent throughout as well. He won them like a lot of headers and he was calm on the ball and his positioning and he and he took the defence up. There was a few occasions that he was taking Thiago Silva up the pitch with him to put high pressure up the pitch and stuff. He was really excellent, really good goal. And then Jorginho, even without his penalties, his little flippity flop, <laughs> which is always risky. You know, it's up to him what he does, but it's always risky. But he was just class yesterday, man. Like that ball to Tammy in the first half and when Tammy took it down and sort of like brought it up into his belly and then he ended up going out for a goal kick. But Jorginho, just throughout the game, the positions that he took up, the way that he dragged Palace players around to create space for Chilwell and Azpilicueta in the fullback positions, the way that he dragged Townsend inside of him and Zaha inside of him when we had the ball deep and stuff, it was just that was my main thoughts on the game really. That I think perfect is a huge word, which is why I hesitate to use it. But it was a very very good performance, and it was exactly what I've been telling everybody is going to happen. I said that once. Werner and Havertz and other people have settled into the team and once we've got a centre forward up there and once Chilwell comes into the team and Silva's played a couple of games and when we've signed a new goalkeeper I know there was a lot to expect but I said once all them things have happened and everything's in place it will come the quiet before the storm I said I thought we'd win the game 5-0 and it was 4-0 because I knew this was coming 
And unfortunately, Crystal Palace felt the wrath of it yesterday. And I think that this is a big stepping stone for us going forward. But what did you think of the game, Keith? Obviously, you were just as excited and just as positive as me. But how did you view the game? Other than, well, perfect, other than perfect, obviously. <laughs> well, I mean, the starting eleven, I loved it. Yeah. It even, was the first even, time... Sorry, even, even, even without Pulisic as well. It was the first time Zuma and Silva played together and they looked solid. Yes, I know it was Palace, it's not Liverpool, it's not Bayern, but you've got to start but, somewhere. But Crystal Palace who score goals. Yes, you have to especially start somewhere. Away, especially away. Well, look what happened to Man United. Correct. Look, well, look at Crystal, Crystal Palace have had a... I think Crystal Palace have had a top 10 away record for like four consecutive seasons or something. Yes. <laughs> Again, Kante was brilliant. Yeah. My first half notes sort of conclude with, you know, some lovely patterns of play going forward, but there was no seek and destroy attitude. Now, what I mean by that is, is that there was no clinical threat. You had the one chance by Werner. Yeah. That you know, Guaita saved quite comfortably, but yeah. really that was it. There was no. They, they mentioned a few times that when there was opportunities to cross the ball, there was only one player in the box, and I think sometimes that affects how Callum Hudson Odoi plays because Callum Hudson Odoi may think, "Oh, I can skin this player, I can turn this player inside out right now," but I'm going to get to the byline, and Tammy's being marked by three centre backs. Mm. So maybe that affects Callum's decision-making on when he's going to try and beat the player. Sorry to cut you in there, Keith. No, no, no. Listen. That's like an important tactical thing. that I, It's just come to me there that you were mentioning about Callum Hudson-Doy and not beating players when clearly he's got the talent to do so. They mentioned it on Match of the Day and Sky Sports yesterday that there was a good few times that Chelsea had opportunities to get the ball in the box, but Tammy was being marked by Kuraté, Sacco and, you know, MacArthur or something. You know, it was like... Hmm. Sorry, carry on, Keith. No, no, by all means. There was moments in the second half that hudson Adoy did have 1v1 opportunities with yeah. the young left-back. Led, led to the first goal, right? Yes. Yeah. And he'd done very, very well from it. So, more of that, Callum, please. That would be yeah. fantastic. Um, I thought every single player played brilliantly. Jorginho, as you said, again... You know, at the moment, looked very, very good. We're going to talk about him later when it yeah, comes people, to the transfers. Please, please, yeah, people, please, you know, like, get onto BBC iPlayer or whatever or whatever platform you want to watch it on and just watch a match of the day or a highlight, you know, a 10, 15-minute real highlight of the game and just watch the positions that Jorginho picks up, you know, and, and just watch it from a Jorginho perspective. doesn't matter what's going on. Just watch Jorginho all the time. Because for anyone that doesn't appreciate his class, I think it's because the stuff that he does is so unnoticed. If you just watch him in that Palace game for 15 minutes, then and even in the Palace game last season when he came on for the last 20 minutes and steadied the ship, that's why Chelsea and Man City and other teams were fighting over a £50-60 million centre midfielder. I've got three more notes and then that's it, basically. Yeah. Because, like I said before, there's not much else... I could have wrote about because of the performance was just outstanding. But I think you'll probably have something to say on this. In regards to the fourth goal, what happened beforehand, I just want to... I don't want to talk about Tammy too much because, to be honest, I can understand why he had the ump. I don't have a problem with that. But Cesar Aspilicueta, one of my favourite players of all time as a Chelsea player, and I've 
I have, think I mentioned before on the podcast, if, if I have, then check the archives. But what a top man. And he yeah. was the captain that led by fucking example. He was the, the guy who put everything, all the doubts to rest about, oh, there could be dissension in the ranks, Tammy wants his goal, and all that crap that could have, could have happened. Cesar just went up to Tammy and said, no, we have a designated penalty taker. You have to step aside. Jorginho's taking it. That's it. Yeah, and I think that I think that everything you said there is absolutely true. I think that it can't go unnoticed. The thing is, right, you, you, you don't appreciate, nine times out of ten, you would never appreciate what a fantastic job Azpilicueta did until he did not do it, if that makes sense. So when he doesn't take control of that situation and it blows up and everyone has a massive row and it has a massive cloud hanging over the game, that's what makes his, again, it's a bit like, it's a bit like Jorginho doing things that are almost unnoticed, that are so important that if he didn't do them, everything would explode around it. So I think that you've made that point really, really well. I think, yeah, Tammy did have the ump. I think Tammy had, I think he had a right to go up and ask for the penalty. Agreed. Right, I think he had a right to go up there and go, oh, come on, let me get my, let me get my first time goal of the season, man. Come on, like, I've, I've worked really hard today. I've missed, I've missed a big chance because he did miss, the header was, you know, he should have scored that, you know. He was not under yes. a lot of pressure. He's 10 yards out from goal, 8 yards out even, whatever. You know, he should probably score that. Well, no, not probably. He should score that. Um, and that's not me being, me being negative. I think that's just a, a fair, I think Tammy would say that himself, to be honest with you. So I think I think that there's a way he could have approached it. He almost could have come up with a big charming smile on his face, being all young and everything, and just being like, oh, come on, Georgie, let me take it. Come on, I've worked really hard today. I need a goal. Come on, you've had one already. Come on. I think he could have approached it a bit different. But yeah, Dave, come over, nipped it all in the bud. Tammy wasn't happy, but Tammy went and congratulated Jorginho straight away. There's been interviews since where Frank Lampard just said, yeah, that's why the captain's there. Georgie's our penalty taker. That's the way it is. Tammy's taking it on the chin and Tammy will come back stronger. Like, there's no issue. There is no issue there whatsoever. I mean, I tell you how little of an issue I saw with that situation and the interviews after that I forgot that it happened until you mentioned it. Hmm. Even though I actually recorded my reaction and commented on it at the time, which I've put up on the YouTube channel, uh, quite a few people have actually viewed them, which is always almost a bit cringeworthy thinking about people watching me react to goals because I know I go a bit over the top. Um, but I remember commenting on at the time, like, yeah, you know, fair enough. Dave's come over and sorted it out. Sweet, move on. It, does, it doesn't, it sort of, I don't even think that they'll mention it. I don't even, I think that now that, now that Dave's handled the situation, I think that Frank might say to Tammy, everything all right? And Tammy will go, yeah, sweet. Yeah, don't worry about it. And they'll move on. And they will and they won't even mention it come tomorrow morning when they turn up training. I bet they don't even mention it. You're probably right. Yeah. yeah. I don't you, you are, you are probably right. Tammy, Tammy's already scored goals this season. Tammy will score more goals this season. You know, who's to say that the next time that we're freeing up, Georgie might just go, yeah, Tam, God, put one away. Or the next time that, Tammy's on a hat-trick, Jorginho might let him take it and then they'll have a good laugh about it and they'll be like, yeah, yeah, do you remember that? Fucking hell, yeah, Jesus. Like, do you know what I mean? Mm. So, no, I haven't got no issue with it. I don't think anyone else has got a particular issue with it. I think, like like we both sort of agreed and touched upon there, Tammy's got a, a right to go up there and sort of ask him for it because he's the centre-forward and everything. 
But then if, if he gives it to Tammy, why doesn't he give it to Timo? And if he gives it to Timo, why doesn't he give it to Havertz for his first Premier League goal? And why doesn't he give it to Giroud for his first Premier League goal? So that's why you can't let Tammy take the penalty in that situation, unless he is on a hat-trick or something, you know? And there are team rules. There yeah, is a so penalty that, yeah. taker and, and Tam- for a and reason. Tammy wasn't, and listen, Tammy wasn't happy with it, but I don't care if he's happy with it. I want him to accept it and crack on. He accepted it and cracked on. Absolutely. I just want to touch on one thing. Um, although he doesn't play for Chelsea, I thought his performance, or lack of performance, showed. Wilfred Zaha, nah. who, if you remember, Warren, last year when the transfer ban was finished and uh, we played Palace last November at home, yeah. there was obviously rumours about Wilfred Zaha being linked to us. And, and yeah. he didn't have a good game yesterday. And in my opinion, not just based on these two performances in general, but I think more of a collective, he is one of the most overrated footballers in the league. Well, the reason the reason I can't disagree with you, as much as I would like to disagree with you, <laughs> the reason I can't is because he's never produced it at a consistent level. Right Now, there's a few arguments to say that he's never had necessarily the best teammates around him, um, which I don't think is the case anymore. I think there's a good manager there. I think there's good players around him. Then I, I think a lot of it comes down to his own personal motivation. I think it's obvious that he's got a bucket load of ability, but he just doesn't want to work that hard. He wants to just be the luxury player who kind of works a little bit less hard than everybody else and everything's kind of built around him because he's got used to that at Palace. I think that... A team like Crystal Palace is perfect for someone like Will Saha because I don't think he ever would play for a top, top club because I don't think he's motivated to. So if he could just concentrate on playing for Crystal Palace, he would be a top-class player for Crystal Palace and everybody would say, why didn't he make a bigger move kind of thing? But, you know, he would build his own little dynasty down at Crystal Palace. And there's worse clubs to do it for, man. Crystal Palace is a fantastic club. So um, every single time Palace looked like they could maybe make a counter-attack, we put in a really clever little foul. And once a player had put in two or three of them, somebody else went and put in two or three of them. And we stifled Palace really, really well. And we stopped Zaha getting on the ball, as Pedaqueta showed his experience. Thiago Silva, that was obviously on the right-hand side of the fence, was always in the right position to stop Will from receiving the ball. That was really important. Jorginho, again, if you look at the amount of times that MacArthur or McCarthy or one of the centre-backs or the left-back of Crystal Palace pick up the ball... And the first thing they do is look for Wilf and Jorginho will just make a couple of steps left or right just to cut the angle of the pass off so they can't get it into him. And that's what I mean about just watching Jorginho and just watching what only he does because he does it so brilliantly. He does it better than Kante. Kante can recover a lot better and his pace is better and his legs are better and things like that so he can like intercept the ball. Jorginho doesn't intercept the ball that much because they never try and pass through him because he positions himself too well. And he stifles the counter-attack better than... In, in that sense, he stifles the counter-attack better than any other player in the Premier League, I think. So I think we played Zaha out the game. Like We certainly played to our own strengths and forced Palace into... Well, Roy Hodgson said mistakes. I, I, I don't know about mistakes, really. I thought they were good goals in their own right. All of them, really. <laughs> I think with the mistakes that people have referred to that Palace did, I think it was more with the penalty decisions... You know, rather than... I'm not sure. Overall... I'm not sure that the first penalty was a penalty. 
Okay. I disagree, but we have to, we have to agree to disagree on that one. I thought yeah, both I, 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 I thought both were solid penalties, in my opinion. The second one is the second one is unquestionable. And the first one, once it's been given, it's hard to argue with it, sort of thing, either way. But I think the first one was very it was very harsh, shall we say. Even if it was a penalty it was a harsh decision, even if it was the correct one. Um, the second penalty was absolutely a penalty. Like there's no, there's no question about that. Lovely footwork from Havertz. Quick feet. There was a few times he showed his really quick feet yesterday. There was a few times Paddy players thought that they had intercepted the ball off of him, and he'd get his leg, and he, and he'd and he'd get his leg through their legs to touch the ball, but not just to touch the ball, but to actually control it into his path so that he could carry on running with it. There was a few little moments, and I was like, oh, he's got some. He's got some footwork, that boy, I tell you. <laughs> One final point I want to mention before we move on from the Palace game and on to the transfers is something that I picked up and something that a lot of people picked up um, afterwards that mentioned to me about if I would like to mention it on the podcast. I said, absolutely. Firstly, I would like to uh, mention that a few weeks ago, I referred to Jermaine Genus as Jermaine Penis a couple of weeks ago. And that uh, unfortunately um, caused a bit of a stir with some people. And I would like to apologize for that. This is, this is the first apology of the Blue Day podcast that I would like to make for referencing Jermaine Genus as Jermaine Penis. It's, it's, it's very primary school-esque material, really. However... I have a new name for Jermaine Genus. Warren, would you like to hear it? Uh, yeah, Keith, can we, we're going to have to edit this and restart this because I didn't know you was going to say this. I don't know that we should apologise for saying Jermaine Penis. No, 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 no. I will, on behalf of the Blue Day podcast, apologise because, it, like I said, it is very primary school-esque. But his new name, Warren, Jermaine right. Genus, is the King Penis of Punditry. And the reason why I say that... What's different about that to Jermaine Penis? Because, you know, referring his surname as penis is very primary school-ish. But I think that with Jermaine's hard work and his intelligence as a pundit, he, he, he deserves a title right, you know, you rather what, than let's, just let's, a name. We can edit this out. Restart the apology then. Fair enough. Fair enough. Re- sorry, <laughs> we can obviously just, you can just cut this whole I feel out. that he deserves a title. So that's why, if, so from now on, on this Blue Day podcast and even on the YouTube channel, on Facebook and Instagram, he will be forever known as Jermaine Genus, the King Penis of Punditry. And the reason why he has deserved this accolade, Warren, is because he made one of the most stupidest comments a co-commentator has ever said before. We were 4-0 up. What, what, what was this? What, what, what broadcast? What was this? What, this was what? on BT Sport. For those of you that probably don't have BT Sport or whatever, Jermaine Genus was the co-commentator of the game. Yeah. And he made a comment after the uh, third, it was the fourth goal. Sorry, not the third goal. It was the fourth goal. And he said, and I quote, I wouldn't say the scoreline reflects the game. Hmm. Well, I want to. I want to let that sink in. So he feels it didn't. Wow. Um, he feels the sco- He said, "I wouldn't say the scoreline reflects the game." Now, a few people that I know on the f- a few Facebook groups, and Matt, thank you very much for uh, putting this in my direction. By the way, 
I had somebody send me the match stats for the yeah, game. I was about to say, did we not have 18 shots and 70% right. of the possession or something? I have the stats in front of me, so just bear, just bear with me for one sec. The possession, 71%, they had 29%. This is the overall possession of the game. Yeah. Shots. The total shot was 17 compared yeah. to 4. On target, 6 compared to zilch. Mm-hmm. Off target, 6 compared to 2. And blocked shots, 5 compared to 2. The overall passes of the game, we had 90% success rate with our passes. Palace had 74% success rate. And we won 4-0. And this idiot who is earning a wage from BT and the BBC. No, 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 that's incorrect. Surely he pays them. Surely he's there as some kind of like special programme or something. I'm just astounded that he has a job as a pundit by saying, I wouldn't say the scoreline reflects the game. And it just goes to show, fellow Chelsea supporters, it just goes to show, Jermaine Genus, you are a fucking turd. (laughs) <laughs> well, I tell I tell you the two points that I'll make, right? I tell you the two points that I'll make in regards to Jermaine Genus, the king penis of punditry. Thank you for saying his title. Yes, I got it correct as well. I had to think about it. Um, the two things that I'll say is number one, maybe he was gonna make a bit reflect a bit more on his point and maybe something happened in the game and he kind of got cut off and didn't get a chance to finish his point. Maybe he, the point that he was making with the fact that Palace actually defended really well to stop us creating twice the amount of chances and stop us creating twice the amount of like clear-cut opportunities. And you could see what they were trying to do and maybe 4-0 was a bit harsh on the effort that Crystal Palace put in. Maybe he was trying to make that point. Um, also, my second point that I'd like to make is, as much as I take the piss out of Jermaine Genus and don't think he's a very good pundit, his opinion is an awful lot more qualified than mine. He is still a Premier League footballer who was a talented footballer, and he is by he is a million times a better pundit than I am. It's just that I'm not an ex-professional footballer, so it's unfair to make that comparison. So I can take the piss out of Jermaine Genius for being shit, in the same way that I can say that Joel Linton at Newcastle is an infinitely better footballer than I am, but he's nowhere near as fucking good as Timo Werner, so he's shit. It's the same principle. I'm just saying that I acknowledge that Jermaine Genius knows a lot more about the game of football than I do. It's just that compared to a pundit that's not as thick as two short planks and not so biased because he played for a Tottenham team that never beat Chelsea. He must have played against Chelsea 10, 11, 12, 13 times for Tottenham and never fucking beat us. And he's, he's fucking, only claim to fame. Bitter, and he's fucking bitter. His only claim to fame is the League Cup in 2008. Other than that, he's won fuck oh, was, all. He part, was he part of that team? Was he? He, apparently, he was a part of that team, uh, yes. Uh, uh. Well, that's disappointing because it's just stomped all over my point a little bit there. So thanks for that, Keith. But um, even so, even so, that barely counts. Fucking Peter Cech punched it against Jonathan Woodgate's head. <laughs> I'll still remember that game for Didier Jogba's brilliant free kick. I'm always positive about games. I remember that free kick. 
<laughs> anyway, fuck Jermaine Genius. <laughs> I prefer Jermaine Genius to Chris Sutton. No, no, I was. I'm I really knew. Dope. I knew no, he was I really, to say really that. dope. No, Chris Sutton would piss all over Jermaine Genius in a in a in a punditry fight. I'm sorry. He'd beat him up. He'd beat him up in a fight. I will grant you that. But no, I'm sorry, Chris Sutton. No, I preferred at least Jermaine Genius. Like at least he has this sort of like endearing innocence about him, where he's stupid. It's a bit like Jamie Redknapp. You think, oh look, bless him, he's sweet, really, isn't it? Whereas Chris Sutton's born an arsehole. Don't put Mr. Redknapp in the same category as Jermaine Genius. No, you you cannot do that. Oh no, no, no. But as for Chris Sutton, he would he would wipe the floor with the. King Penis I'm sorry. I was born in the London Borough of Sutton. I should love Chris Sutton, and I don't because he's a tosser. <laughs> Shall we move on to more pressing matters? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Fuck, yeah. Um, <laughs> modern-day Chelsea. Modern Chelsea. Modern-day Chelsea. Let's move on to it. The transfer deadline for uh, international teams, for international clubs, I, I should say, is on Monday. And there are plenty of stories going around with certain players on the move. Not many stories of us buying players. But Warren, let's just sort of briefly touch the surface on a couple of stories that I found out this morning. And we'll talk about uh, one particular transfer that happened during the week. ESPN, who I'm not a fan of in regards to finding stories from them. Because for me, you know, it's an American channel talking about English football. So they're going to find out 20 minutes after us, even if they find anything out that's technically exclusive. Exactly. So with all due respect to the uh, Chelsea supporters across the pond, what the fuck does ESPN know? But they, they did a story. You know, my view is backed up by this particular story that they, they're bringing out is that Jorginho is going to be joining Arsenal before Monday on a season long loan. Well, why has Frank been playing him so much then? Did Jorginho look like a guy that was going to be on the move yesterday? No. Thank you. Let's move on because I don't want to uh, give ESPN any more fucking airtime than they than can they I, deserve. Can I, just, can, I, can I just say that as somebody who um, has a sports subscription on my TV service and I have ESPN on it, I do actually quite like the ESPN service, generally speaking, in terms of their sports coverage. Oh, um, no, no, don't, don't get me in wrong. In terms of their basketball and everything that they show, they've got some really good like commentators and pundits on there. However, their knowledge is generally going to be more likely to be filtered down in second hand once it reaches the American media. Don't get me wrong. ESPN, I've I've got a subscription for it. I'm a huge fan of their coverage, especially yeah. with the Major League Baseball up the Atlanta Braves. However, when it comes to football, leave it the fuck alone. The other story I've got, and this is one that's catching on quite a lot, Red is Sox, uh, Red Sox. <laughs> bollocks to your Red Sox. Um, Timmy Bakayoko is on his way to Napoli. On loan, no obligation to buy. It's just a pure-based loan for the season. One season, yeah? One season. What's he got left on his contract now? Two years? I believe it's two years. This season and next, isn't it? Yes. Because he was signed in 17 under Conte? for 2017, yes. Yeah, five-year contract. Yeah, it makes sense. So, 
a good move for him. Very good move for Napoli, in my opinion. And again, he, like I said before about Emerson, Bakayoko <laughs> seems to be that sort of guy that would suit the Serie A game. And I know he had a loan at Milan that, mm. and he wanted to go back to Milan, but obviously never materialised. So can I just say with, yes, with, but, with, with regards to that, and we talk about Bakayoko being better suited to the Italian league and Emerson and Alonso. And, you know, if you look back at and you look at people like Clarence Seydorf, and Andrea, Andrea Perlo and these these oh. these these midfielders that were world class at every level and they've done it in the Champions League and the World Cup so obviously it wasn't just because of the way that the Italian game was styled but this is another reason that Jorginho is so class because to grow up in a game where there's not a lot of high pressure there's a lot of sitting off and waiting for the other team to make a mistake and the Italian way of game, playing which is a lot slower and stuff like that and a lot more technical on the ball rather than running off of the ball and stuff like that it just shows how well how well class Jorginho is to have adapted from a game that he's played for 25 years to have adapted that so quickly and I know that he was poor under Sarri but that was bigger issues than Jorginho's talent or ability to adjust or whatever but the longer he's playing in the Premier League the better and better he's becoming and it's a testament to have come from that style of play to this style of play and to have made that transition to the point that other Premier League clubs are very interested in him because they see the, the, the class potential that's there. It shows that Jorginho is class, as I keep saying. <laughs> Sorry, carry on. Yeah, Babioka. Yeah, no, I just want to say, you know, Babioka, I know his first season wasn't great. You know, I think his hairstyle was probably, you know, Better than his overall he's not, performances. He's, he's not a bad player. I've seen him in quite a few more, more Champions League games and Europa League games racing Milan over the seasons. But I've seen him, you know, six or seven times, and he's a very accomplished footballer. He's not a bad player, and the reason why I say that is because you cannot be a shit player when you won the league over PSG for a Monaco side. That okay, be it still had Bernardo Silva, Thomas that, Lamar, Kylian Mbappe. Oh, yeah. But he was he was the heart of that midfield. Yeah, yeah. He was. So you can't be a shit player. But overall, good luck to Timo Bakayoko. Another player that came in the summer of 2017 under Antonio Conte, Antonio Rudiger. Now, it looks like he's been banned from the Chelsea squad, let alone you know not attending. Has he got the COVID matches. or something? I don't know what's going on there. Well, it's. I'm I'm shocked actually because one of the Chelsea supporters who I know very very well gave actually a good point with Timo Werner and Kai Havertz coming in. Uh, apparently, to, uh, Antonio Rudiger was asked about these potential players. Potentially, we've, we've mentioned it on the podcast before. What a huge role Antonio Rudiger had in particularly Werner and Havertz coming to Chelsea. Yes. Now, something's obviously happened that we don't know, and we're not going to speculate because there's, there's, no, there's no point. But in regards to Antonio Rudiger, it looks like his future lies elsewhere. It is, a, In my opinion, it is a shame. I know that he did have a mistake in him. I'm dis- yeah, I'm still, I'm still, I would have loved I'm still, to have I'm seen I'm still disappointed. It. Yeah, I'm still disappointed. There was still a time... Under Conte especially, not so much, and, and then at times under Sarri, not so much under Lampard, but there there was times that he was our rock and that he looked every bit the... There was times that he looked every bit the Marcel Desailly, you know, 
you know, big and pacey and good on the ball and, you know, etc, etc. I mean, he's had some good times at the club and I've always, always, always felt like Tony Rudig has given 100%. So if what seems likely is that it is the end of his time at Chelsea, I just personally would like to thank him for his devotion to the club for the last, you know, three or four seasons. And, you know, I think that he has produced a lot of good performances and he's always played with his heart and he's always given 100% and he's been vital in other players coming to the club. So whatever his fate may be at the club, you know, I think he's been a good enough servant and the very best of luck to him. The two clubs that I've heard sort of this morning and last night that are looking to sign him are Tottenham, AC Milan, and there's, I think, either maybe one or two other Italian clubs that are also linked. But those two were the standout names. Was there not? Was there not? Was there not initially talk of like West Ham or something? Oh, that's all bollocks. No, no, that, no, that, that, that would be a lu- now. I tell you what, for West Ham, that would be a luxury buy. That that would be a Harrods, but with all due respect, <laughs> I think I think West Ham would probably have to take a loan out. Yeah. No, no pun intended. They'd have to take a loan out to loan him. Yes, they would have to take a loan out. No pun intended to loan him. But I hope he doesn't go to Tottenham. F- fucking hell, I really hope he doesn't uh, go to Tottenham. I think, but... that, I think that Roman has proven before with his statement about um, because Cudicini went there on a free because he had his contract to run out with a club. But there was another occasion when Chelsea were going to sell a player to Tottenham and I can't for the life of me think that the name just escapes me just for this moment but Chelsea there was it was agree- Colton Cole it was Colton Cole thank you very much well done Keith well done thank you very much um, the player who scored the first ever goal you saw live at Chelsea am I correct that's correct yes we was going to sell him to Tottenham and there was an agreement in place and he was on the way for a medical and Roman was like no we don't do business for Tottenham you're mad so yeah. I don't think he'll go to Tottenham for that reason because Roman knows how important it is. Frank and Jody know how important that is to not be selling them to not only our rivals but to Tottenham as well. I don't see that happening. If he goes, I can. It's the same with Jorginho. If if Rudiger or Jorginho were to go, I cannot for the life of me imagine them going to a Premier League club. Same with same, same, same with Kante. The same with anybody that could potentially leave in the coming seasons I cannot imagine them going to a Premier League club well one player that has gone to a Premier League club which surprised quite a few mm. let's let's just say was Ross Barkley going to Aston Villa on loan now I'm assuming a certain JT might have had something to do with it possibly you know he might have uh, been speaking to the powers that be at Villa about potentially getting a player in from his beloved Chelsea, but strange. I, I, th- I think that's absolutely how the deal was definitely initially how the deal came about. I think that Frank would have been in contact with a lot of different managers and, you know, a lot of different coaches and scouts and agents and stuff. And the club would have been as well. But I think absolutely John would have spoken to Frank privately and said, you know, if you are going to be letting anybody go out on loan, then tell us first and if we're interested can you speak to the player and let them speak to us first potentially so I think that's definitely what may have happened I think that Ross has made a decision that the Euros are next season and he has to guarantee himself the opportunity at first team football I think that Ross is one of them players that you know Havertz is 
Havertz and Kante and Jorginho are always going to be given the opportunity to prove themselves, whereas Ross, if he's given the opportunity to prove himself and he doesn't produce, he might not get another chance, whereas the other players will. So I think Ross has put himself in a position where he probably will get 10 games in a row, just based on him being a, a very, 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 very good player. I think he's well suited to Aston Villa. I think Aston Villa have got a really good sign as well. They've like made really good signings. They've kept Greenish. So I think it's a really good move for him. So I think it works really well for Chelsea. I think it works really well for Ross. I think it works really well for Aston Villa. And I think it works really well for England. I think the surprise is that it was Ross and not Ruben. I think Frank has sat down and thought, who do I want as that squad backup player to potentially get into the first team? Do I want it to be Ross or do I want it to be Ruben? And I think he's made the choice and decided he wants it to be Ruben. I think when Ruben plays this season, even though he might occasionally be asked to sort of play wide and fill in in certain games, I think if he ever he starts in the Premier League, he'll be starting in central midfield. In that role in behind, you know, next to a Kante or Jorginho or a Kovacic. So I think that's kind of the thinking behind that loan move, that it was either Ross or Ruben. Because mm. one of them, one of them had to go because neither of they wasn't both going to stay and risk their place in the England squad. Well, it'll be interesting if actually Ruben stays because, as you say, how is he going to get? I think, a if he, I think if he goes, I, I I don't imagine a situation where he goes and we don't bring somebody else in because of numbers. We've already shown that two players not fit. One player not signed and two players injured leaves us with the Brighton performance and the West Brom performance in the first half and things like that. that that's what it leaves us with when we're missing, you know, half of the team. So I don't think we can afford to let... Now Barkley's gone, I don't think we can afford to let Ruben go. Billy Gilmore's still the best part of a month from full fitness, so it's going to be six, seven, eight weeks until he's ready to start and finish a game, you would imagine, at least. So you're talking about it being pushing on for Christmas time until he's starting and finishing matches. And if he's going to be an important member of our squad, I, I think Ruben will get more chances now that Ross has gone. I think that's the way that Ruben sees it. They was probably almost both given the opportunity and probably had to decide between themselves who wanted to fight for their place and who wanted to go and get guaranteed football at a lesser club. And I think Ross has made that decision because he came from a lesser club in Everton. Well, how did, what do you think about it, Keith? What do you well, think? I, t- I don't know. Who would you have kept? Uh, what, out of Barclay and Loftus-Cheek? Yeah. At this moment in time, I, will, I probably would have kept Barclay. But I can understand for his point why he's gone because yeah. I wouldn't see Barclay ahead of Mount, I wouldn't see Barkley ahead of Havertz, and Barkley in the sort of the central midfield role where Kante and Jorginho uh, plays, Barkley... And, Kovic, and Kovacic and Gilman. Sorry, and, 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 and Matteo Kovacic. I don't think Barkley's good in that position. Not with the way we play, so he certainly doesn't. He certainly doesn't bring the best out of him. No, so I can see why he's gone for for Aston Villa. It's probably one of the best signings they've made in the last two to three years. 
if you know in regards to technical ability and what Barkley can produce for that kind of club. But overall, I don't think Barkley's been a necessarily a good signing for Chelsea. I was expecting a lot more from him when we signed yeah, him. He's no, he's, he's overall, never, I, I was expecting him to score ten to fifteen goals a season with his ability, you know, with his natural ability and with the way we would probably mm-hmm. play to his strengths. But obviously, that hasn't happened. But for me, Aston Villa have got themselves a fantastic player. Agreed. Yeah. So can I can I just make the point about that with the ten to fifteen goals? This is something that I was speaking about with a good friend of mine, like big big football fan, um, Kieran. He's a Man United fan. I was speaking about this with him about a year ago, uh, maybe even less, and he said that not last season but the season before, Paul Pogba was the highest goal scoring midfielder in the Premier League. Right? I know it seems like I'm going off topic, but I will I will come round to it shortly. He said that Paul Pogba was the highest goal scorer in the mid. In highest goal scoring midfielder in the Premier League that season, right? So I said, yeah, but that's not the achievement it used to be because a left winger when Frank Lampard was playing was, you know, Damian Duck, Sean White Phillips, Ryan Giggs, David Beckham. Whereas a winger now is Raheem Sterling or Timo Werner or, you know, Eden Hazard or someone like that. So midfielders aren't scoring as many goals because there's more forwards now. So. My point about that is that to expect a midfielder to score 10 to 15 goals a season, that's an astonishing amount of goals to score. If Havertz can score 10 to 15 goals a season, he is going to be world class because midfielders don't get the goals like they used to anymore. Because there was a time when there was two and even sometimes one striker and then the rest of the players were midfielders. Now there's three forwards and sometimes one or two other players that are considered forwards and not even central midfielders. So I, I totally appreciate what you're saying, Keith. I expect him to be a lot more consistent and to get more goals and to get more assists and to be involved in the play a lot more, especially going forward. I expected a lot more of that from him. But I think the days are gone when you can expect you know, players to get 10, 15 goals from central midfield, really. I mean, even Havertz playing in behind the strikers. I mean, he's considered a central midfielder, but he's just playing off of the forwards. For him to get 10, 15 goals a season would be astonishing. So for Ross Barkley to do it, you're talking about him being Frank Lampard. I never expected Ross Barkley to be Frank Lampard. Interesting. Interesting. I saw it the different way. I did see Ross Barkley as a potential Frank Lampard-esque player in regards to being in the right place at the right time, scoring goals. Because he, he had that in him at Everton where he was in the right place at the right time and he used to drive on with the ball against... He still never scored, he still never scored that volume of goals though, I don't think. No, he didn't, but he had the potential because he was a young guy at Everton. He had the potential to do that and I was delighted <laughs> I was delighted when we signed him. But was, he, yeah, he, yeah, he, he was yeah. injured for you know, a long, long time and I think his debut came on the last day of the season against Newcastle. I was going to say, yeah, I was going to say, I was going to say he didn't come back until near the cup final. No, he he came back very, very late. So he didn't really have that, you know, that sort of debut where he would shine and it took a long time for him. Yeah, it was never really, yeah, it was never really his debut in the spotlight. And I think since then, whether or not it's played into the, the hands, I don't know, but I do 
personally believe that the Barkley deal, you know, for him it was obviously great because it was a step up in his career. But in my opinion, it wasn't looking back, you know, now it probably wasn't the greatest of signings. But uh, it wasn't the best business. We're I never, don't think it was the best business for us looking back. But I just want to end this on the point because you know Ross Barkley is a good player. And I do appreciate his efforts and talents. Again, I wish him the very, very, very best. Yes, absolutely. Good luck at Aston Villa. He I hope will... he comes back. I mean, I, I hope beyond more than anything that he comes back to Chelsea and is a brilliant player for Chelsea next season. Well, he could come back a stronger yeah. player because yeah. he will be playing every week. He'll be playing for an Aston Villa side that I believe he will be playing to Barkley's strengths. And if Barkley goes to the Euros, then he's done an exceptionally great job and he hopefully will come back a bigger player but Warren just to conclude on this do you believe that we will be signing anybody do you believe that there'll be more players outgoing well rather than the ones that we've just mentioned because the you know the clock is ticking well there's two I, I guess that there's two very opposite and two very blunt answers to that one no and the reasons for that are, I think that we have what we need for now. The other answer is yes, because it depends who leaves in the next, not just in the next coming days, but domestically. Because I can imagine that people, you know, we talked about Rudiger and Jorginho and Kante, even though they're that Kante's obviously not going anywhere. We don't think Jorginho is going anywhere. But if any of these players were to go anywhere, we've I've discussed that. I think they'd only go abroad. There's a lot of players that I think could go to places domestically. So I think that, even though I think Emerson would probably go abroad, I think that Victor Moses and Danny Drinkwater and one or two other fringe players could go to English teams. So there's not just a couple of days of the transfer window, there's still a week and a half because obviously the domestic deadline is more than a week later. So yes, I can still see us bringing players in potentially... But I think it's more likely that a couple of players will leave and we'll keep our team as it is. If Rudiger leaves, I think that he will want to strengthen the numbers around that. So I can see whether or not it's a good sign and I'm not. I'm not going to go into that right now. But I can see Declan Rice coming in still. I still think that it appears that Frank's a big admirer of him. So... I think Declan Rice may, may come in when Rudiger goes. But apart from that, I'm edging more on no. I think that a few players will go out on loan or whatever. But I think it, it would certainly appear that our business is done. Especially on yesterday's performance. I mean, let's just go back to that. What a fucking great win. 4-0. Oh, yeah. Well, with your point on that, let's touch basis on... The Champions League draw, because as you say, 4-0, the performance, let's hope we see that in Europe. The clean sheet, the whole three. Let's hope, well, let's hope we see that in Europe. Let's go with the Champions League draw. Three teams that I don't believe we've actually played before in Europe. These um, will be very, very interesting games in our group. Yeah, um, I think that on the, on the face of it, it appears a very good draw I think that we must treat it um with great trepidation because I think Sevilla will, is always a tough place to go a lot will depend on the places that are tough to go and less tough to go without the fans 
So we must look at that from both sides. Stamford Bridge is a fortress, and Chelsea have one of the best records at home of any European team ever. I mean, we didn't even lose a home European... I know we didn't have as many campaigns as many of the other top teams, obviously, which is obviously a, a massive contributing factor to this, but we didn't lose a European game until we lost against Lazio in the Champions League 2-1 in the the second group stage. For those of you that don't remember, the Champions League reformatted in the late 90s and there was two group stages and then it was the quarterfinals and they replaced the second group stage with the round of 16, the second round now. Um, and we lost 2-1. Um, and, and so we've got an amazing home record. So part uh, obviously a ma- a, the main contributing factor to that is the Chelsea fans. So we're going to be missing out on our home fortress, so to speak, as well. So that's another reason that I think we have to look at... The, we, we would look at Sevilla, Crescendor and Wren and think, right, nine home points. We need to win an away game when we go through. I don't think that we can necessarily bank on that like we used to because we haven't got the fans. So um, Sevilla are a very good side. I think it'll be a real test for us tactically to see where we are and technically to see how we come up against you know like Spanish opposition and that tic-a-tac type football and a team that's been together a lot and just wins European trophies for fun. Crescendo will be difficult because it will be tricky weather conditions and it's a long journey and there's been a lot a lot of games um, to fit in and then all of a sudden we've got like a million mile journey to throw in there in the freezing cold and everything so that's by no means a banker at all. And I think anybody that thinks that that's a banker needs to rethink their ideas. Wren, the French league, is improving. I think Wren, home and away, is our best chance of six points, not even Crescendor. I tell you what, if we could beat Sevilla at home, Crescendor at home, Wren home and away, get a point at Crescendor, then you know, we're, you know you're looking at us being through. So I think Crescendor away is actually our second hardest away game. But on the whole, bearing in mind it could have been PSG and RB Leipzig and whoever else Man United have got, then yeah, obviously I'm very pleased with the draw. But I think we have to be realistic about it. I think we have to be realistic about where we are at as well. We look at that group and we think that there's times gone by that not only have we been champions of Europe, but there's been times that we was much better in the season that we were champions of Europe. I don't think we can look at that group as if we're that team. No. No. Because, and because we're not. Because we're not. You've got to remember that Sevilla are looking at that and they're thinking, of all the English teams, we could have got Man City or Liverpool or someone like that, or blah, blah. And we haven't. We've got Chelsea. So it's the same as us saying, right, we've got Sevilla, not, I was going to say Barcelona, but they're proper shit. But you know what I mean? Like, we, we've got Sevilla. We haven't got Atletico Madrid, Real Madrid, Barcelona. So Sevilla might be looking at us the same way. And Wren might be looking at us the same way as well. So we, well, we, this is, we have to approach this realistically. I, I, I'm very pleased with the draw. Ecstatic, if I'm truth be told. But I'm very, very realistic about it. Very positive, but I'm very realistic about it. What, how did you think, Keith? When it, obviously, you've done the live stream. Thank you very much, everyone, for tuning in on YouTube. Nearly 100 live views on that. So thank you very much, everyone, for that. But what did you think, Keith, when the... Uh, names come out the hat so to speak well i'm glad you mentioned the live stream uh here at the blue day podcast we did the we did do a live stream of the champions league draw um audio aside i thought was very good some people did complain about it but we did it on youtube and facebook 
we are going um, to improve. We are going to improve that in the future. It was a little bit last minute. We are going to improve the that one on YouTube. I apologise for. There was a bit of a uh, a technical issue on my front, but the one on Facebook was a lot better. So thank you for those that joined me with the Champions League draw via Facebook. Thank you for that. And if you did join us on the Blue Day podcast for the Champions League draw, then please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please subscribe to our Facebook page. And in fact, subscribe on iTunes on the Blue Day podcast. But when you're talking about the Champions League draw, I do agree with you to a point whereby we're not the Chelsea side from years gone by. We we were, say, pot one in the group or even pot two. And we'd, be looking, it was, we'd be looking at this. We'd be looking at this group in between 2005 and 2011. We'd be looking at that group and we'd be saying this is our chance to get 18 points in a group for the first time. Yes. So I agree with you on that point about we should not take this lightly, because as you say, I think Seville will probably look at the draw and say, yeah, we could get maximum points. But so for the benefit of putting a fine point on it. I just want to tell you at the moment where the teams are in the table and their form, because I do think yeah. that is so significant. When is our, so when, when is our opening game for the Champions League? Our opening game, I believe, is on the 20th or the 21st of October. So yeah. we've got Southampton at home the game before, and then it's a Champions League. Yeah. But Seville at the moment... They've only played two games and they've won two. Yeah. Right, and we know what Seville are going to be like because they are no mugs. They did no, win the Europa certainly. League. Oh, they did win the Europa League. I, I think it'd be interesting to see the betting odds to see who's favourite to win the group out of Seville mm. and Chelsea. Krasnodar are seventh in the Russian League at the moment. They've won four games out of nine. Mm. So if you look at it from that point, they've only lost Not two. Great. But they've, they've only lost two out of nine games, if you look at it like that. And the last one, Wren, which I've just looked on the stats now and I was a bit surprised. They're top of the French League at the moment and they haven't lost a game yet, no, which is interesting. No, but you've got a potentially... Now, I haven't caught too much of the French League at the beginning of the season. There's been so much going on that I've been watching a lot of German and Italian football, as well as the English Premier League, obviously, and the Carabao Cup and, you know, the Championship and everything. But it'd be interesting to see who they've played, because this is the thing with the French League, that from 10th to bottom, they're complete horseshit. And then from 10th to 6th, they're kind of all right. They're kind of, you know, like the teams that would be fighting off relegation every season in the Premier League. And then from 6th to 3rd, yeah, there's some decent enough teams. There's some teams that might be, you know, mid to lower of the top half of the Premier League. You know, shit teams like Tottenham and Arsenal. And then you've got a couple of decent teams at the top. So, Wren might have played three teams that would struggle to stay in the Championship this season. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. But my my overall sort of comments with, on that would be, you can only beat what's in front of you. Correct. And, yeah. you know... I'm not saying that we, we struggled um, against we struggled against Brighton and West Brom at the end of the day. So yes, and yeah. if you look at the draw that we had last year, you know with Valencia and Ajax and Lille, that was tougher. Yes, I agree. Although I'm as as I'm with you, I'm delighted that you know we've got them teams. 
but we shouldn't necessarily think it's 18 points. But I, I do expect us to perform, especially with the players that we've got. I expect us yeah, to do I well think, against those sides. Yeah, I think especially because the additions that we've made are, I mean, I know that Ben Chilwell doesn't necessarily have loads of Champions League experience or anything, but Mendy and Werner and Havertz and Silva are all top experienced like Mendy not necessarily top experienced but like they're all experienced European campaigners as well so I think that that even without them necessarily even though they are like better players than what we had last season even without them being better players just their experience will make us a better European outfit anyway so Mm, I agree so that'll be interesting Havertz have been playing European or Champions League football for a couple of seasons now. I mean, Havertz for a couple of seasons, Werner for three or four. Yes. So it'll be interesting when the Champions League commences, how we get on and, you know, how the team will function with league and European competition. So good luck to the team for the Champions League this season. Warren, it's been a long morning. The weather is still shit, but let's end on a positive well, let's end, let's end on an unbelievable positive and say that I'm in the north of England and I can actually see sunshine. I'm not joking. I'm going to take <laughs> I'm going to take a picture on WhatsApp it to you so you know that I'm not lying. Okay. Right. right. Bear with me. I'm going to have to go to my window because this is unbelievable. This. Well, while you're doing that, we've just received an email this morning on the Blue Day Podcast at Gmail dot com from a guy who's who's been in touch before by the name of Aaron. He's contacted us saying, Hi, Keith and Warren. Hope you're both doing good. Thanks for reading out my email on the last episode. It was good to hear your opinions on my rant. Great result yesterday. Always nice to win 4-0 when, you, when you're not at your best, especially in a London derby. But I have a question for you both, a question that I feel is always a good debate. What are your, what are your both all-time best and favourite Chelsea eleven? Oh. But only but only players that have been around since you've supported the club. Now, Aaron, thank you very much for your list. Yeah. Warren, we're not going to go on it today because I want to actually talk about this next week on next week's episode because I think, I think it's going to take a week I was going to say, I'm going to need a little bit of time on that one. That's a, that's a ponder of that. Yes, Aaron, again, thank you for your email. It is a great debate. It is a great topic to discuss. I think think maybe what we could do is to sort of expand on that and to give it a little bit more airtime next week. Maybe what what me and Keith can do in the upcoming week is take a bit of what Aaron said there, only since we've been alive. So um, I was born in 1987 um, and Keith was born in 1962. No, I'm joking. When was you born, Keith? 1990. (laughs) <laughs> 1990. So we'd have a very similar outtake. Maybe what we could do is we could do our favourite, so our favourite players, so not necessarily the best or, you know, the best free-flowing or whatever. Maybe we could do, like, the best, and then we could do, like, all-time 11, and then we could do the greatest. We'll figure something out. That's a really good one, Aaron. I'll tell you what, me and Keith are going to figure something out during the week, and then during the International Week next week, we're going to... Bring that up. Did you say that Aaron had put his all-time eleven? He has, but I would like we to. Won't share well, that. We won't share that today. When no, we're we're not going to share that today. We we will share that next week because I want to. I'd like to compare that with 
yeah. mine. I'd like to compare that with yours. Absolutely. But, I'd like to compare that with the other viewers as well. So maybe if other viewers can get in touch at the uh, the Blue Day Podcast at gmail dot com or the YouTube channel or Facebook or Instagram, that's all the Blue Day Podcast. Find us on there, like and subscribe. Maybe if you could put in your favourite eleven since you've been alive, because there's going to be a lot of viewers of different ages and stuff like that. So maybe if you guys stick to the context of Aaron's email and say your favourite 11 since you've been alive, um, and then we can, yeah, we can read them out next week during the international break when we're going to be needing content from you guys. So, yeah, brilliant. Yeah, yeah, great idea, Aaron. Thanks so much for that. Brilliant. Well, here at the Blue Day Podcast, we are delighted, elated with joy. Ecstatic. I have a smile on my face because I know what you're going to say and I have a smile on my face, Keith. Well, we're going to end this episode on a huge announcement and it's something that I'm very proud that we have accomplished quite early on on this podcast journey. Yeah. Now, I said at the very beginning that I want to get guests on the show that can give their memories of Chelsea. And we talk all things Chelsea. And I am delighted, absolutely delighted, to announce, Warren and fellow Chelsea supporters, that in the next couple of weeks, we have the chairman and director of the Chelsea Pitch Owners, Mr Chris Isitt, on the show to talk about the Chelsea Pitch Owners and to talk about his love for Chelsea. Warren, I'm delighted that we've managed to get this sorted and it's I'm very much looking forward to having him on the show. Oh, well, I mean, obviously me and Keith have been talking about this and been in contact with Mr. I- Mr. Chris Isitt for many, many weeks now and I know it may seem a little bit silly to say but it's almost a dream come true to get somebody of his stature so early. I mean, for you, for those of you that don't know about the Chelsea Pitch Owners Club, and what it represents and what it stands for, what it means, where it comes from. It's all going to be explained on the upcoming podcast with him, further details to be announced exactly when we're going to be putting that broadcast out and stuff. But like Keith said, it will be in the coming weeks. But yeah, it's just it's so exciting. I think that so many people are going to learn so much about the history and heritage and the passion of Chelsea and where it comes from and why when we say that we want to hear from supporters that were fans in the 60s, 70s and 80s particularly, um, and even beyond that and since and everything, of course, but particularly that era is because of things like the Chelsea Pitch Owners Club, which is obviously um, one of the most important, one of the most important chapters in Chelsea's history. And I think it's very, very important for those of you that don't know about it or don't know everything about it, or maybe just need an update on it, or you know you might know everything about it and just need a little refresher because you haven't thought about it for a while. You know, please tune in for that because it's going to be really, really good. Chris, is it? Is it that you know he's a really, really nice guy, um, and he's looking to not only promote the Chelsea Pitch Owners Club and what they do and everything. He's really keen to you know support our channel. He said that himself that he's listened to the podcast and he supports everything that we're saying and what the are sort of what we're trying to accomplish. So, you know, it's so exciting, honestly. I think he's gonna he's gonna enlighten so many people potentially, and um, potentially all of our listeners. He, he may enlighten you to an aspect of Chelsea that you didn't know about before, and you may find your love and your passion and your sort of camaraderie towards the club 
massively improve after listening to him because what he's going to have to say is one of the most, like I say, it's one of the most important chapters in the history of Chelsea Football Club. Up there with being created, up there with Ken Bates, up there with our first league title in 1955, up there with Roman taking over the club. The Chelsea Pitch Owners Club is as, if not more important than all of those things. We cannot exist without the Chelsea Pitch Owners Club. So if you don't know about it, and even if you do, tune in because it's going to be absolutely fantastic. Completely, 100% agree with, with what you've just said. If it wasn't for the Chelsea Pitch Owners, Chelsea Football Club would be a very, very different entity. It could not, it, it, it could not exist no. anywhere near to the capacity that it does these days. I don't want to... My lips are trembling with wanting to say... And obviously, I'm not. I'm gonna. Re- I'm, I'm gonna reserve that right to Chris. Is it? And quite rightly so. But yeah, please tune in to hear about what the Chelsea Pitch Owners Club done because it, it will be emotional. So the Chelsea Pitch Owners, they will be on the podcast coming up very, very soon. But Warren, let's end it on a positive. Let's get Harry J and the All Stars on to end the show. <laughs> and. Fellow Chelsea supporters, keep the blue flag flying, enjoy the international break, and we will be back very, very soon. Carefree. Network. Let me give you a big Liberty surprise. Most people think if we all exercise the same and eat the same, we'd all look the same. And let me tell you why that's wrong. Your body is unique and your metabolism is unique. I'm Lacey Green and I'm a super trainer at Body. That's B-O-D-I.com. And you can't see me, but I don't look like your average personal trainer. I'm curvy and I'm proud of it. So I created a program for beginners only on the Body app to show people like us how to get incredible results and be our version of happy and healthy. This isn't just workout 
videos. It's people like you and me. It's community. It's incredible trainers. It's easy to follow nutrition and mindset experts to help you reduce stress and just feel better. And you can get started with my new program called For Beginners Only. Now, here's the big surprise. If you go to body.com right now, that's B-O-D-I.com, not only can you get everything Body has to offer at 50% off with an annual membership, you'll also get an additional 20% off, but only during Labor Day weekend. Let's do this together. Go to body.com. That's body with an I.com.